Escape from Plan A. everyone welcome to another episode of episode from plan a this is jess happy new year guys uh i've got a team with me how's it going team hey how's it going uh, okay that answer just really hasn't changed in a year i think um but i mean today so like i mean it's we're we're a, a very spicy week into 2021 um so i mean biden's taking office soon i think hopefully i had God knows what next week's going to hold. Um, so I thought it was just, so I think we were thinking it would be a good time to just kind of uh, reflect on last week and kind of see uh, see what's ahead, even briefly, like however briefly into the future we can penetrate. Um, so yeah, we'll, let's see how that goes. Yeah, just um, before we hit record, like you were saying how in LA, uh, you know, obviously, you know, in the news, it's like, been um a year unlike you know it's like a a a banner year for disaster in la and fires and then there's uh this raging uh outbreak there but you said at the on the other hand life is still carrying on as as normal to a large extent and for me i feel like that's a big question uh for 2021 and going forward is like what's normal and what's like even with all this stuff going on around us this apocalyptic level stuff if you watch the news life still still kind of in its way carries on as normal you know and that to me leaves me with two of two minds because part of me is is always uh you know uh, feeling like everything's about to fall apart uh, and where you know there's going to be some uh, some sort of culmin- culminating event, uh, but on the other hand, every day is also a slog and routine and normal as as always. Uh, and so I think that leaves me confused. I think I gather that leaves a lot of people confused. I I, I have to believe so. I mean, the numbers are. I mean. So we've got, we've got many numbers we can go on, right? Since this is one of those things where you can't really trust your eyes on this. Um, I think this is where a big split, like, oh, COVID is a hoax versus, like, the world is ending. That I think this is, it's, it's how much you trust what you see, uh, how much you trust yourself, your, like, own subjective uh, empirical knowledge of your own little world, and how much you believe in what others are saying about their subjective experiences. Um. Where am I going with this? Uh, so, I mean, we know like 10 million, 10 million families have been shoved into poverty since last year. Um, life is certainly not normal for them, right? Um, so it's just a question of like, for whom will things go to nor- go back to go quote back to normal, and when that will happen? There's a, a widening group of people for whom that will not ever happen, right? Uh, and not to mention the people who are sick or dead as a result of this, right? Um, so I guess this is a conversation. Are you trying to target it to, like, 
I would talk a lot about uh, next nine politics, right? Mm-hmm. The position, social position. Are you talking about are you limiting it, limiting it to that group? Because I feel like this is um, asking, like, are things normal or when they will go back to normal? This is a question for people for whom that's a possibility. So you're talking about the work from home, upper middle class uh, crew here, right? Or is See, there something else you're driving at? <laughs> I don't know because. Um... I, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't even really know what the question means, other than um, did 2020 feel normal? No, like in a, I guess I'm just trying to tease apart like what, um, like what is the, like for example, I thought that the economy was going to get absolutely shredded by COVID, like mm-hmm. just having like these intermittent lockdowns and. We haven't had like normal retail business in almost a year. Um, you know, the schools were shut down. The office buildings were almost all shut down. I check regularly on the MTA website and subway ridership is still down 75% year on year. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a year where the subways are only, a, you know, a less than a quarter full compared to, you know, a normal yeah. year compared to last year. And so, and of course, you know, there's like almost no air travel. And I would have thought that that would have been apocalyptic when it came to the economy. But from what I hear, uh, by what you would call normal measures of the economy, things are fine. And I, I I found that really surprising. And I've been thinking a lot about what that means. Mm -hmm. And... I, I feel like those sort of there's these contradictions that pop up these these sort of paradoxes, and it's starting to at least for me shed a little bit of a light on what was going on all along that that could happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, wanna, wanna, I, I mean, I saw I, I saw you lay out some stuff on Twitter, but uh, uh, you want to talk about that a little more while we have that teed up? Yeah, I mean, I thought. Uh, relating to that thread, I was just thinking about how if, like, as a thought experiment, if a country like China had uh, experienced a COVID break, uh, outbreak the way we did, I, I think that their, their economy would have been totally decimated. I don't think they could have afforded to be as carefree about it as we have, because I don't think that they could just send a huge portion of their workers home and have them work from home. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. there's something about their economy or I should say there's something about our economy that makes us different. And the fact that like so many people, all my friends, all my white collar friends, except for the doctors, they still have to go in. Right. So leaving aside the doctors, um, I mean, though, though, though I guess some of them could do it remote, but but yeah, I mean, most doctors have to go in. They all just packed it up, stayed at home, and there's been zero sort of repercussion from that. Mm-hmm. Like that hasn't made you know work uh, any different, really. And that's uh, that was a huge experiment, and I still think like we're trying to figure out what that means. But I think part of what it means is like we don't we don't actually do anything <laughs> in a way. Yeah, we don't have a pr- we don't have a productive economy the way uh, you laid it out. We don't produce um, anything. 
you can't farm from home. You can't manufacture from home. Um, if that were the if that were the cornerstone on which this quote economy sat on, then that would have been gutted. So yeah, I think, yeah, I I think about- I'm more or less agreeing with you. Um, Mm-hmm. So we're talking about like like a lot of focus goes on the one percent or the rather the point one percent of the one percent, um, the politics of the one percent, and then the next nine. The uh, was it the professional managerial class, the PMCs? Yeah. Um, and really, our job is is to just move money around on behalf of other people. Yeah. I mean, um, like I was, I was reading this book, uh, which I recommend. I'm, I'm li- reading through it now, but I, and Jess, you should, you should read it at, uh, when you have time. I think it's really good. Uh, it's called "Listen, Liberal" by Thomas Frank, and it's a book about um, sort of the way that liberalism shifted from a sort of like blue collar working class uh, union type liberalism like a economic populism populism mm-hmm. you know in a in a more lefty sense uh leave aside yeah. Bannon's bastardization of that term yeah um, lining up more with like early 20th century notions of labor yeah exactly new deal and yeah. towards what it is today which is a sort of like professional managerial class very into um credentials particularly the ivy league credentials very into expertise expert domains of knowledge and, um, you know, part of the, if you recall from, I don't know if people remember that movie primary colors, but it was like a, it was like a, like, um, kind of like a fake Bill Clinton. It was like, it was like a movie about Bill Clinton that just called the guy by another name, but there's a famous, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, what's his name? John Travolta plays this guy named Stanton. <laughs> and okay. it's really good. I recommend I recommend the movie. It's really good. And okay. he he's uh, Clinton uh, running for his first term, and he, he goes to a union of like shipbuilders, and he gives this speech where he's like, "I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna tell you what's in store for you. Like, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it." He's like, "Your jobs, they're not coming back. And if you care about the future, you're gonna have to go back to school because." you know, we are turning into an information economy. We're going to be a knowledge economy. We're like the new world is coming. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So that presaged the, uh, learn to code, uh, several years back. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And, and everyone at that time was talking about this new world where we would be producing knowledge. We would be producing, um, you know, technology, like ideas and, and, and stuff, we wouldn't be producing things. We, that, that, that's the old economy. The new economy is producing ideas. And I think I mean, that was one of the hallmarks of, of the Clinton uh, third way, right? The transition to the service economy, like the boutique knowledge worker. Exactly. Where ideas, um, I mean, and software is kind of like tech quote tech was, um, um, the cornerstone of this, where that would be the dominant U S export. <clears throat> right. And we started thinking about stuff like intellectual property. Like we, we started thinking about commodities in an abstract sense where we could think of software as a commodity or we could think of like entertainment and, you know, literature and movies and things like that as commodities to export. 
and that people who created that stuff were like worker. They were like blue collar workers, except now they worked in an office building or they worked in a studio or they worked, uh, you know, um, at home via broadband or something like that. Mm-hmm. But in essence, we were still productive. And I'm re- reading this book, Listen Liberal, and it's interesting because it it doesn't really question this. It says at one point um, that since 1997, uh, the wage, the real wages, meaning like on a on a on a just an absolute basis of like the 90 percent of Americans who are like working class. Their wages have remained stagnant. They have not participated in any of the economic growth since mm-hmm. 97. That's crazy, right? Considering how much growth there's been since 97. Explosive yeah. growth. That's all, all been concentrated, concentrated to the top 10%. But he says mm-hmm. that this is particularly fucked up because the American worker is more productive than ever, making more things than ever, producing more stuff than ever, but not participating in what they produce. And that's uh, an assumption I think that I'm starting to realize is probably wrong because he's taking into, I think this is just productivity as GDP uh, Mm -hmm. divided by the labor pool. Okay. And GDP, I think, is – I think we take it for granted that GDP counts the amount of stuff we produce. So they'll say like GDP is the amount of goods and services produced by the economy. And I, I, I think that that's there's, – there's a lie in there somewhere. Because if you look at like say Amazon, which is our biggest company, they don't produce anything. They just sell stuff. Most Mm -hmm. vast majority of it's made uh, abroad in in other countries. Mm -hmm. So they're literally just selling stuff. Uh, And, and, uh, you know, before them, it was uh, Walmart. I think Walmart is the largest employer in America. They just sell stuff. They don't make anything. Mm -hmm. So when they say produce goods and services, uh, I don't think anyone in Amazon actually makes anything, right? Unless I'm mistaken. I mean, yeah, sure. They make... Uh uh, I guess they designed the Kindle, but that's also produced, manufactured overseas. Uh, no, there's a there's if you're talking about Amazon, it's a, it's a really really deep. It, it actually resembles uh, Asian conglomerates quite a bit. Mm-hmm. The Octopus Company. Right. It's a huge enterprise. So like AWS, right? That's yep. a huge, which recently hit the news. Uh, I don't think most people know about know about that particular thing, but that's like a fifty billion dollar. Yeah. Uh, enterprise all on its own. But, but that's like a, they're like web hosting essentially, right? I mean, they're, so I mean, yeah, I guess. I, I mean, in a, mm, in, I mean, it's deeper than that. But like for the average person to think about it, they're essentially it's, it's just web hosting. hosting. So I, it's hard to tell. Like it's, I, I, I'm not struggling to define what it is. I'm struggling to find it to fit it into what you're talking about, right? So is it actually producing something, or is it mostly a, the most efficient uh, middleman for the transfer? of goods and services. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a point where like Amazon in particular, like the quantity has become the quality of it. Um, mm-hmm. Like Amazon is a huge uh, manufacturer, like they manufacture stuff themselves. Maybe not here, maybe uh, overseas, but they are directly responsible for the design manufacture. And of course the shipping and distribution of, of their own, uh, their own products. 
Uh, there's AWS. There's a whole. Uh, they are a media company as well. So, but it's, but it's hard to know. Like, it's not. It's not. It's hard to quantify that as like. It's hard to quantify that in like a bushel of corn. But what I'm trying to say is that they're like we should stop trying to do that because I think they're fundamentally different things. In that, okay. and I and I think like uh, I don't know. I, I, we're, we're really we really want to think about abstract services and and things like that as a form of uh, production. But I think we mm-hmm. should like you know stop and realize like you know life is still sustained by material goods. Like we still need physical food. We still need like physical housing, clothing, all that stuff. Like that's all like still as necessary as ever, but mm-hmm. no one is making it. I mean, as far as we, within the bounds of like the, what we call the U S within the United States. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I mean AWS I is a perfect example. It's like they're providing, uh, you know, uh, cloud computing services, but that's not going to feed you. That's not going to keep you warm. Um, that's not going to keep you fed. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's something, I don't know what it is, but it's not productive in that sense, in, in the sense I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, the way it would translate to that is it generates this thing we call money that is doled out to the people who are employed by this company. And they use that, they exchange that to buy food and, housing and clothing and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, because uh, I think we're, we're getting away from the basic question, the basic structure of like the global economy, which is like who houses us, who feeds us, who, who pr- produces all the stuff in our house, like, or, like that, that we use, like who's making all this stuff for us to consume. Mm-hmm. Like the question is what is consumption, right? I don't consume cloud computing the same way I consume, um, physical goods. And yeah. uh, I think that the weird, you know, when you realize we don't really produce anything, we produce some things, but usually either using very, very like oppressed labor, like mm-hmm. migrant laborers in the fields and they have no rights or whatever. Um, or we retain some really high value manufacturing, like Boeing jets, you know, Mm -hmm. or weapons or something, um, high, high, high end machinery. But just for like the vast majority of stuff that takes an incredible amount of labor to keep everyone, uh, everyone's house fully stocked with everything that we need day to day from the rest of the world. Mm hmm. And it's like, what state of affairs is there that the rest of the world would be willing to do that for us? Because we're not really sending much back to them, you know? Like, we're running up trade deficits like crazy. So why would the rest of the world continue to, to, you know, um, uh, agree to do this for us? And if we're not producing, then what exactly is our economy about? Like, over here, if all we're doing net on a net basis is just consuming then what is our economy in a, in, in that sense on a net basis? I know there are some productive workers in America, but on a net basis, we're consumers, we're net consumers. So 
what so is then this the, would be a big parasite then you're, you're framing this as a, as a parasitic relationship i think so i don't think there's any other way to really think about it i think we're parasitic okay. uh because like why would the world agree to just provide us with with actual physical stuff that they made they got out of bed and made Mm-hmm. And devoted like this much time in their life to do it. IMF loan. Yeah, where and all they're really getting <laughs> in return is uh, on a net, like you know, on a net basis, is is like a pile of U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. So what? You know, and and that's not changing, right? That's like every year the deficit get the trade imbalances, the current account deficits get bigger and bigger. I think like during. Um, COVID in the depths of this, quote, trade war, uh, which is kind of like a phantom war uh, because they said, like, trade volumes with China just absolutely exploded because everyone was buying stuff on, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So... It, it actually shot through the roof. Shot through the roof. So you have, like, an American economy that's supposedly shut down. You have all these politicians running around going, like, oh, yeah... We're, we uh, we can't shut down the economy. We can't keep people at home. Meanwhile, the uh, you know the economy of consumption is chugging right along. In, in fact, faster than ever. And it makes me feel like that's revealing. I guess you know earlier I said I, I think COVID kind of revealed some things. I think something that it revealed to me is like our primary job is just to consume. That's our yeah. primary job. As long as I, we're consuming. I mean, you know, I think so. I mean, that has roots. I remember, do you remember the um, uh, Bush Bush Two W? Yeah. Um, those big campaigns. You know, patriotism is shopping, basically. Yeah, he 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 gave out a hundred dollar checks to everyone after nine eleven. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the exhortation was to get out there. You know, if you want to serve America, you you know, go shopping. Yeah, go shopping. You consume. You're being a yeah, good economic consumer. I thought about this in previous years. Um, I mean, when we were talking more in uh, in more abstract, more social terms, not ec- hard economic or political terms, um, how much of the alienation comes from uh, everything about modern life is about consumerism. We've criticized this from a number of angles. We're, this was an Asian-American joint, so we criticized it for the, the hollowness of the Asian-American aesthetic identity, which is just it's just consumerism and tokens of consumer and tokens of consumerism that we imbue with some kind of um, identity. Um, so I think, uh, I think you're, I think you're correct. I would agree with you on that, that uh, everything that we are about is, is how to become better consumers. There isn't really anything real under that. Very yeah, I think the tricky use. part is that... We don't have very tangible skills, um, for one thing. Yeah, exactly. I think that leaves people really... Um, I mean, I think there's psychological and cultural effects to this, but like, I think the, the, the tricky part in understanding this is because the econometric term productivity or worker productivity is, I think, a misnomer. Because the way it works... Right. If you buy something off Amazon, that is actually counted into GDP, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, so sales activity on Amazon is counted into GDP. How does that? Wait. How does that get counted? I actually don't know how GDP is calculated. Then is it just a like Amazon's balance sheet? 
added up? Like all the big companies just add up their balance sheet? I don't know if it's as simple as balance sheet, but I think it's a measure. They, it's a measure of transactions. Uh, mm-hmm. But they, I, I'm sure there's some way that they try and re, uh, remove duplicate, like re- remove duplicate transactions. Like if uh-huh. it's the same good just going down the chain, they don't. They only want to count it once. Right. Yeah, that would make sense. I don't know how agricultural goods are are, are counted either. I feel like last year, um, something like 60% of agricultural revenue was actually from the federal government, mm-hmm. like through subsidies. So right, there was right. there were giant yields, which were all big, like, a lot of those yields were just going to go to waste um, because the mechanisms to, for distribution have been disrupted. Uh, but the money is still raining down, so they're still producing to meet the terms of their subsidies. Uh, how, if you don't know, you don't know. But this is just—it's just a question I have now. Like, how do how do our how does our corn get tabulated to GDP? Considering yeah. it's grown mostly with federal dollars, and does that the dollars the quote dollar value of that corn yield also get added to GDP? I don't know. This number seems very inefficient to me. Yeah, I've never liked it as a uh, as a measure of anything. Um, there's a there's a website called aboutamazon.com, which is a very pro Amazon. Uh, it's a uh, some some pro- Amazon propaganda, uh, okay. and it says that uh, since 2010, um, Amazon has added about 315 billion dollars to the U.S. GDP. How though? See, so well, yeah, I mean, that's, big, that's, a, that's the question, right? Is how? Yeah, and I have to think that um, that a lot of what we add to the GDP is really is really part of consumption, not production. So uh, it's, it's, is it mostly just a measure of activity then? Like dollars changing hands? I think there's a way, like again, I think there's a way for them to collapse that so that just pure middlemen are not counted. Like buying and selling by middlemen are not counted. Mm-hmm. But the the sale of a good in the US will add to the GDP, right? And so I think even I think that good came from China. Yeah, I think well, they I mean, try. I guess the idea and, is if a U, if U.S. dollars um, commissioned that, like a, like IBM manufacturing in China, mm-hmm. well, that's a net outflow of U.S. dollars into China. Then I don't I don't know how to. Yeah, I think the GDP does have a way to correct for imports. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that they don't want to count. Uh, the value of goods imported. So I think they take a net export. I, I do think that they take a haircut on import versus on, on, on like the current account deficit. So like the trade deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to think that if you look at worker productivity, like total GDP, how much of that GDP is really connected to production and how much of it is connected to things like Apple taking a large slice of profits on iPhones that are manufactured abroad. So Mm -hmm. royalties on IP, uh, licensing fees, things like that are certainly counted into GDP. So rents and services. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Like rents, right? Like property rights, like patent Uh rights, licensing fees, uh, things like that. So like the iPhone, I'm sure most of that is going to register as US GDP even though the things are made abroad. 
right? Because mm-hmm. Apple owns the trademarks yeah, on it. It owns the okay. software in it. It owns the patents on it. It owns everything, right? But the actual thing is produced abroad. But I think the vast majority of that's probably going to go into U.S. in, in, in going to be counted as U.S. production. Okay. So what you're saying, like the, getting into the weeds aside, oh, one random question though. So we printed like $4 trillion in stimulus, $6 trillion if we're talking all the packages together. Yeah. How does that, so that's, 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 uh, that's new money, right, being printed. How does that get tabulated? People talk about, I mean. I, that's a deficit. That, that'll get tabulated as a government deficit. As a deficit, okay. Yeah. Because all of that money then got funneled, and most of that did get captured by uh, by Wall Street, you know, proxy for the companies, privately held companies, mm-hmm. right? Does then that get counted as GDP? No, I, I don't think just like pumping it out. Boeing just, got eighty billion dollars in in quote stimulus that gets added to their balance sheets. I don't think that's um, GDP. No. Okay. All right. Um, hmm. okay. Or like you getting, uh, you know, a six hundred dollar check in the mail is not GDP, mm-hmm. right? Because nothing was made. What I'm saying is like what we consider made is a lot of it's just getting paid for stuff like like, like rights, like or like legal services. If if a law firm sells legal services, that goes into GDP. Like services are part of GDP, right? Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is that. I feel like a lot of the economy is transactions that aren't really productive, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it is say an American company capturing the lion's share of profits of production done abroad on its behalf, it's the, mm-hmm. exactly the way Apple does, right? Or let's say um, uh, a high-end retail clothing or like a, not a high-end, but like one of those high margin uh, U.S. clothing uh, retailers that you find in any given mall. Um, I'm thinking of Abercrombie and Fitch in particular, but I don't know if they even exist anymore. But if they sell, um, you know, if 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 they sell clothes that are made overseas, I mean, I think that they will take out the value that um, the manufacturer got paid from GDP. But all the additional markup and stuff that Abercrombie earns, that's GDP in the U.S. Okay. Right. So, again, that's not productive. That's like marketing, right? That's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, just all that stuff. Okay. So, that's, so that, that, then that's a, the that's a case for this bifurcation that we're seeing. Probably. Yeah, okay, I, got a, I got a friend that works at Nike. He's in the marketing side of Nike. Everything mm-hmm. that Nike makes is made abroad in Malaysia, China, Vietnam. Yeah. But so they don't make anything. They make advertisements. And they also have really fancy stores and a fancy digital website to buy things and all this stuff. So they don't make anything. But I guarantee you that all that stuff is being counted into GDP. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why uh, then in that case, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of grim then. So that explains why there's been a completely why we've just basically bifurcated as a society of people who who are struggling in this in this moment in time and people who are not because it doesn't really affect people who can work from home. We're not really doing much. 
Yeah, that's why I think when when in that book they said that nine you know ninety percent of Americans have not participated in the economic growth uh-huh. uh, since ninety seven, even though they're making more stuff than ever. I challenge whether they've made more stuff than ever. I don't think anyone's making anything. I mean that would that that tracks with a uh, with a a Republican trope, right? Mm-hmm. The, which is uh, which which shows up in the in the dialogue around welfare, right? How it's split between people who are givers and takers. This kind of implies. Then what you're saying is that there is some truth to that. that because, uh, not 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 as a social not not saying it uh, not saying that people who need state uh, aid are takers in a moral sense, but saying that they, if the numbers are showing that they did not participate in quote productivity or wage growth then they literally don't have this capital. And they can't they also can't trade it in exchange for a tangible good because we don't make those goods anymore. Yeah, they're just pre- and I think like in left in in some sort of like lefty circles, uh we don't even call uh the US workers like proletariat in that sense because they're not productive workers, they're like precariats, meaning they're not really needed by the global economy in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like we don't rely on these workers for production and we they don't really exist. rely on them for anything other than to sort of like hang on there. Right. Like mm-hmm. just to like bare exist, bare minimal existence. Just, I don't know, just s- sort of be there and don't be noticed too much. Don't cause too much trouble, you know? And, 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 and I guess what I'm saying is that, um, that that's the only that really is the only way that I think the U.S. sense of normal can be understood. And the more I think of it this way, the more sort of my experience working and understand and hearing about the experience of like my friends working and all this stuff starts to make more sense because all of us know instinctively that we don't actually do anything in a material way. Yes, we're busy, right? But we're not doing anything in the sense like no one leaves it all on the shop floor at the end of the day and is like, can think about all the things that you just made or think think about all the things of value that you just created, wealth that you created, right? You're just busy. You're just busy. You're just doing like tasks. And mm. oftentimes, not just like um, Chris and Eliza and Steve recently – uh, reviewed that book on their podcast, Bullshit Jobs. Like that's another book that I think is important in understanding like what normal is. Mm-hmm. Like most people, and it's taboo to talk about it, which is why that book has been quite a, a bit of a minor sensation, I guess, is it says a lot of things that a lot of people know, but very few people say, which is that they don't do anything real at their job. And a lot of people can't even say what their job is exactly. They don't know what their actual function is. Other than to... bosses look like. Exact that's it. That's what it is. Yeah, that's that's how I felt. My boss uh, I told felt completely me that. lied to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he he was like had this really weirdly honest boss, and he would have these meetings and he would say, My job is to make our general counsel look good, and all of your job is the same as mine. It's to make me look good. And he would tell, we had summer interns every year and he would tell the interns, he was like, if you have one takeaway from this summer, this is it. 
I mean, that feels re- that's, that's better advice than anything I got uh, yeah. going up. No, and he was absolutely right. I mean, that's exactly what the job is. Mm-hmm. You're not prov- you're not providing a legal service that adds to the net wealth of society, but that's how it's counted. Mm-hmm. GDP will reflect legal services, you know, sold um, into that year's uh, uh, net basket of goods and services. They say mm-hmm. this is the econometric test of how productive the economy is. So. We're going around telling ourselves these weird lies about how we are adding into this national basket of wealth, but secretly, all of us know that what we contributed isn't worth shit. And I think that that is a sort of economist's way of sort of lying to cloud the 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 sort of larger truth, which is like we are essentially parasitic consumers on the rest of the world at this point. And the and 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 as far as I can tell, a lot of the work that's being done, particularly by um, you know, like say uh, professional middle managers and stuff, is largely an internal political, social political competition for allocation of those consumption rights. Who gets to consume what and how much and when? Mm-hmm. Jockey for position. Like the the little uh, the little fish that swims on the, under sharks trying to nibble off what you can and not get eaten. Yeah, I mean, it's a, if, it's, if the economy is essentially net, you know, on balance, it's parasitic, then the mm-hmm. people participating in that economy are doing... Are are, also- Parasitic, or parasitic as well. our, our activities are parasitic. Dependent. And what we're doing, it's like parasites sort of wrestling for position. That would be a promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, you're wrestling for position in order to get more money so that you can consume more. And mm-hmm. your job is really a sort of like glorified fight or struggle for position in the uh you know the waterfall of 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 consumption and and it's a very you know it's a thing where 10% of society will consume you know the vast majority of it and all the leftovers is for everyone else it's a lot like that uh that 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 Netflix uh <laughs> um the platform. I don't know if you saw that, but it, it's got really popular. People should watch it. Oh yeah, I saw. I, I saw. I saw half of that. Uh, I don't know the ending to it, but it was. It was really fun. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to finish it. That's essentially the gist. Is like it's yeah. you know the it's a it's a cascade of consumption. Mm-hmm. And so the premise we're, we're talking about the, that Spanish language movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it actually is a Spanish movie. So you just you wake up, uh, you and your cellmate are just you are on a random platform. There's many above you, many below, Um, and the the the, at the very very top is a sumptuous feast laid out, Uh, and then uh, as as this uh, as this feast is lowered on the platform down the levels, uh, you have to eat from what's what remains. So as you can imagine, the further down you are, the grosser and more sparse it gets. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the quality of your life is determined entirely by the positioning you are, you know, in that stack. Mm-hmm. Right. But no one's producing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, production is happening sort of outside of the, you know, outside of this thing altogether. Right. Yeah, and the I only think- skill is how to like spot the unmolested grape or something. Yeah. Fastest. Like scramble harder and faster and quicker. Yeah. Before it moves on and you're left hungry. Yeah. Sad that's grim. That feast uh, largely now don't exist inside the United States. They're largely outside of the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It explains why we were able to catastrophically bungle things so badly from the human perspective, but from the numbers, but from the numbers, there's not that much impact. Yeah, this is a very long-winded way of saying the reason I don't think the economy collapsed is because we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. For the most part, none of us really do anything. Uh, we're busy, but that doesn't mean we'd really do anything that would... Cr- There's no economy of production to uh, derail. And yeah. we are... China has no than- choice. Mm-hmm. We like exactly. to moralize. We like to moralize a bit. And, the, and, the res- like, and I think it's a human tendency, and that's, that's, that has its uses. But for here, it's Literally, China could not had to do what it did, or it could not survive as a state. Yes, correct. I think that's a big part of it. Is that Asia in general is a productive uh, zone on Earth? It's part of, you know. I, th- I guess some some people would say that um, it's the global North, which sort of harvests from the global South, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that. Asia's largely sort of global south in that sense and is a zone of production and that they you know there's like the the Acela train out of New York when you come from DC up to New York there's a bridge in Trenton that's really famous because Trenton used to be um you know full of factories and stuff in the early 20th century and there's a bridge and at night it's lit up and it says Trenton makes the world takes, and it was a it was a prideful thing to say Trenton is a is a is a city of industry. We actually make shit while the rest of the world just takes, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's largely now true in a global sense of there's a parts of the world that make and there's parts of the world world that takes, and we absolutely are part of the world that takes, and Asia is part of the world that makes, and they cannot shut down the way we do. They can't go to the factory from home. (laughs) They can't do their production at home. They actually have to be in a factory or they actually have to be in a production space. Uh, And that, that, that would not work. Um, They're not all quote knowledge workers or as Robert Wright called them symbolic analysts, which is (laughs) what they envisioned and planned and hoped this is an intentional transformation of the economy towards what we would call knowledge workers, people that don't do any physical work. And not even that, that cohort is shrinking with the cost of education, the overhead of education rising. Yeah. So that's, so, the, that's, a, that's a rapidly eroding class to begin with. And then second, it means that, you know, from the, from the, from the perspective of the U S state, we have a lot of people that they would they would they find inconvenient 
cost a little costly to the belt. I, I saw it clearly in the articles on China's poverty eradication. Remember those headlines from the New York Times? Like China eradicated absolute poverty, but at what cost? Um, the entire perspective is uh, this shit was really expensive. I, I don't I don't know about this. Was it worth it? And like it, it very clearly tells you what perspective you're writing. I'm pretty sure the uh, the peasant who now has a house to live in and a road and has access to schooling and healthcare, I'm pretty sure they think it's worth it. But that's not the perspective the New York Times is writing it from. It's can we afford, can, could we afford something like that for our, poor, no, no, we can't. We can't. Mm-hmm. It's, sorry, sorry, guys, we just, we can't afford it. It's not good for us. Um, so from the perspective of the U.S., then we just have a lot of people. Um, it doesn't matter if they're cold or not. And I do think there's an, there is an intentional dimension to this. This is where I'm going into 2021 with. I think this was very intentional. Have you it's seen those COVID videos like online of just like all of the like homeless encampments like in LA now? I I pass them by. I I I try to do what I can um, with groups around here, but like it's, it's enormous. I think the homeless population expanded by by a factor of two over the last wow. year. It, no, it's 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 immense. It's absolutely terrible. Um, I mean, more people die of exposure in LA than they do in New York. Wow. Which is That's a crazy. which is which is a stunning statistic, and you wouldn't think that would happen. But I mean, it gets cold enough here where if you're out, you're exposed to the elements um, for a prolonged period of time, you could get hypothermia. Like yeah. we had a period where it was very cold uh, and very wet. It was raining heavily for a few days. A lot of people died. Something like 10 people per day died as a result of that. And this is yeah. in LA. This is a city where our mayor handed over, hands over, handed over like $80 million to a luxury hotel to compensate them for having to shut down. Yeah, po- poverty is definitely on the rise in New York City. Uh, the poverty rate in America is always somewhere hovering between 10 and 15%. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to guess 2020 is going to be when we get the rates because uh, we don't have it yet. It, it, it's going to have spiked. I mean, it's going to be insane. And there's no way it, it could. If the numbers don't come back, you know that they they massage the numbers heavily. I'm sure poverty almost doubles. Is my guess. I'm pretty sure I think we're going to get close to 20 percent poverty in the U.S. I'm pretty sure, and I think Fair I think count. I could be wrong, but I think currently poverty definitions don't even count don't count debt. Uh, below a certain threshold, I think if we looked at debt numbers, that's going to that's going to be eye opening too. Yeah, which is another thing to to talk about. Um, so so it seems like ninety percent. Remember, like we had taught, like I, I don't know if we ever potted about this, but I had started noticing in the newspapers that when they started, um, like in the in in some of the financial press, like Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. That when they started doing demographic financial data, like for example, household debt, that they would break their charts into three lines, right? So, so, so for example, the chart would be household debt over time. So the button, so the x x axis would be years, y would be household debt, and um, there would be three lines charting it. The first line would be the top one percent. Uh, the second line. <laughs> 
would be, and I was thinking about how funny it is, how often in America we use a phrase bottom 90%. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah. so we would have top 1%, then we have bottom 90%. And then there would be a third line, which I didn't often see until I started paying more attention in the financial journals and, or financial press. And it, it was the 9% line. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about it that way, but it, they kept showing 1990. 1990. Mm-hmm. And there were clear differences because over time, uh, household debt for the nine remained relatively stable relative to income. Whereas uh, for the bottom 90, it really kind of went up and in, in, in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of hit a ceiling because they simply couldn't borrow anymore. They just became uncreditworthy after a certain point. Right. But um, it was just interesting to see that the bottom 90 was ex- exhibiting like such a worse uh, debt burden compared to the quote 9% over time. Meaning just to keep up, just to keep afloat, the bottom 90 simply couldn't rely on wage growth because there was no wage growth. There literally was no wage growth since 1997. Like none of the economic growth benefited them. None. That's 90% of the country. And so the only way for them, on the other hand, their, their quote quality of life improved in the sense that they were spending more money, even though they were making less money. And the difference obviously between what they were spending, the growth in spending versus the stagnation of their wages was explained entirely by the explosion in household debt. And that's how they're kept afloat is basically like a mass debt peonage of 90% of Americans. They're just literally just digging the hole deeper for themselves year after year after year. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the 9%. Um, and it's hilarious. When we think of middle class, I think we, we're just talking about that 9%. That's how far, that's how fast and how severely it's morphed. Like when we think of like a two person, like a two parent family with two children, uh, they're both professionals. Roughly what we would, I think there's a myth of that that's quote middle class. Uh, and the numbers are kind of saying that, no, this is actually like, like maybe 10, 15% of Americans. Yeah. It, you know, I, it's funny when I was reading this book, it is, uh, it's a critique of the class structure that really resonated with what I have experienced, which is that the quote middle class is actually an elite class that's better thought of as the, the lieutenants or the officer class, you know, in a military context. So the top 1% would be the generals. The the sort of 10%, the professional managerial class is the officers in general, is the officers and lieutenants, Right. And the bottom 90 is like the vast, uh, the vast army of, or the vast number of grunts, enlisted people. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the real class structure in America. It's a sort of military like hierarchy of tri, it's a three class structure. So there is a middle class, but the middle class is actually much more closely aligned with what we would call the elites. I mean, that's, that's how we make our money. I think you and I fit in that class. Uh, it's a fr- major frustration of mine. 
that in order for us to get ahead, we have to make sure they get ahead. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, we're in service to them, mm-hmm. uh, not to the bottom 90, which means that we've got, this is a feudal structure. This is how it worked. Uh, like, like, uh, like merchants, the, the bourgeoisie, right. In in a feudal sense, that's what it's reverted to. It doesn't have a. I don't think it has a defined class interest of its own. These are not. I mean, and unlike feudal like merchants or or high high level um, creators, we also don't hold uh, like intellectual property of our own. We're not. We're not in command of. We're in command of some skills that only become valuable in service to the higher ups. There's very little that this this nine percent does for the bottom ninety, in terms of uh, advancing interest. Correct, and I think also that um, one thing that I had personally felt, and I know that this is particularly acute for corporate lawyers, right? Because corporate lawyers are probably like the least contribute, like you know, in a way, corporate corporate lawyers are the ones that are probably most aware of how they're not part of a productive economy um, <laughs> is that we really buy into these really simplistic economic ideologies about capitalism and being productive and creating wealth. We love to talk about creating jobs. I feel like, like that maybe, maybe everything we need to know about the structure of our economy is the fact that the main goal of our economy now is to produce something called a job as if it was a, um, a commodity, but that, there's this myth about capitalism that um, that our economy is about workers going out and producing wealth, contributing to the national wealth. And if you look at the fact that the material wealth that we actually consume in our lives, what actually matters, not the host of professional services that went into the corporation, the running of the corporation that that eventually provided you those things, but just the actual tangible stuff. None of us produced it. It was all made overseas. Mm-hmm. So none of us, I think, and I think like, you know, if, if you really take the mythos seriously, it becomes frustrating over time because you realize that the ideology is false and that if you care about having some belief system that's consistent with what you're doing every day, like it's hard to lie to yourself and convince yourself that what you're doing actually matters in that sense, or that that's even what you're doing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, my frustration from tech, I mean, it, um, there, there was this mythos created that this, this would change the world, make the world a better place, solve deep structural problems. Uh, and it's been shown to be a catastrophic failure for the simple reason that the bottom 90 just has no money. You can't actually, there can't be a capitalist solution. That's because they have no capital. Um, this is why the best successes in tech have been extremely parasitic, um, parasitic uh, mechanisms that leverage the desperation of the bottom 90 to give the, the 9% a taste of what life is like at the 1% level. Um, it, we, we, we reinvented slave labor to allow middle, quote, middle class people uh, to have more efficient service. Yeah, I don't think tech really remade the economy in any real way. I think tech really just ushered in a new class of um, 
sort of elites, ruling elites. Yeah, of, that's all because that's industry, that's, that's who right? ran it. Mm-hmm. That's the only people who actually have anything who can who can who you can sell to. Um. So well, I think what they did was essentially they they took they took out the a sort of like older generation of barons and stuff, and and they came with their better technology. Um, and their nimbleness and replace them. But I mean, Amazon. Okay. So Amazon becomes the new Walmart. Okay. So what? <laughs> right. Like, so nothing, nothing has changed paradigmatically. Mm-hmm. Um, Uber just lets you rent a, a driver. DoorDash rents you a servant. I mean, a butler, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, we were um, hailing cabs before Uber came around. It's just a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, an easier way with to... With the power of capital. With the power of immense capital. They still have not turned a profit. Their entire yeah. business model is to suppress prices, eliminate competition, at which point rates will start to jack up. And their big, big, their big uh, fraud was promising investors, oh, actually, we're actually using expensive, inefficient humans? That's just a stopgap. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna invent robot cars and cut out that inefficient step entirely. You just need to hang in there and give us more money until we get to that point. I mean, I would be impressed if they were actually able to do that, but I just don't think that. I think that they knew all along that, that they were no, never going to bring the robot. I don't think they did. I think that was, a, that was marketing. That was, that was just yeah. marketing to get people to pay into it, knowing that it was so deeply unprofitable Yeah. for so long, with no road to profitability without that, that, uh, without that promise. One of, my favorite, one of my favorite commercials is, I think it was a Little Caesars commercial where they were doing a sort of like Silicon Valley style unveil event, you know, where uh-huh. a guy comes on stage with a headset and starts talking shit. <laughs> and he was like, uh-huh. a new way to disrupt the pizza business. He was like, legs! And then this like pair of like robotic legs comes out and, it, he, <laughs> and, he, and he jumps and he sits on the legs and the legs like walk him. And he was like, with legs, you could walk to the pizza store. And it was this, um, I think it was just funny to me because it does, it, it, it satirized the idea that none of this is actually innovation. And you're not really supposed to say this because you're supposed to like bow down to the altar of like Silicon Valley and its amazing innovations. But if you stop to think about it, what innovations have they really Brought. I mean, like, look at what's coming out now. Like, say, like WeWork, which is the last disaster. Is like, okay, so they're leasing commercial office space on the web. Uber is the big one. Okay, so it's like hail a taxi on your phone, but it's still a taxi. Mm-hmm. Amazon is ju- it's Walmart, <laughs> but online. Like there's, it's Walmart except with a better website and fewer real stores. Yeah, that's all it is. I I don't like, and we're we're supposed to bow down to this because they're so successful, but I don't know really how innovative they are. They're they're not. This has been a deep frustration of mine. This is why I just basically dipped out. I work I work for myself basically now. Hmm. Um, but no, this this is this is deeply parasitic. Very slickly rebranded, but very extremely parasitic, and it's entire. And I, this is one of those things. I wish capitalism actually worked in this case. All we need are more markets. We need markets to actually work. 
it'd be amazing if more people actually had access to money to be able to fund, to be able to buy into different kinds of things. We don't. Amazon, Uber, all of these that we work, uh, I mean, who are the customers for these products? Right? There is such a narrow, a richly endowed but narrow band of consumers that it's even viable to, to make a business for. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're running into now is is we're running up against the fact that the American consumer uh, is essentially tapped out. Mm-hmm. Um, balance sheet, like that next night, but their balance sheets are looking really bad too. Um, I don't, I mean, have you noticed that too? Like household debt for even high end, high earning families. Mm-hmm. It's, where do we go from there? We can't keep like it seems like we we're hitting a a, a debt limit uh, pretty quickly. If we well, the upside, the upside for them, the nine percent, I think, are a little bit shielded because they do have like their balance sheets are flush with assets that are appreciating. So they own homes and they own stocks, right? So they appreciate in the upside, meaning that they are owner class to a degree, right? What so degree? they they have shares. Let's say they don't have a lot of shares, but they got shares. The junior partners in all of this. I, it just makes me very nervous. We have a lot of uh, crises coming to a peak at the same time. Yeah. Like this doesn't go on for right. Like housing prices in LA jumped. Mm-hmm. Like it's like twenty percent. It's in, it's extremely outrageous. Um, at the same time that we like, there's like five thousand evictions a day or something. It's some crazy number. Yeah, exactly. Because again, I think that. America can no longer be seen as a single unified economy or even country. The markets that serve, like exactly like you said, the markets that serve the lucky 10% are completely different than the ones that serve the rest of the 90%. Mm-hmm. They operate in almost, di- it's almost like that's when people started talking about K shaped recoveries and stuff, you know? Yeah. And, it only the things only make sense now to to say like okay are things going to go back to normal, well for who right it's like the top the, the lucky ten or everyone else. Mm-hmm. I think that's the question, and the assumption though is that that's gonna that's gonna carry on forever. Like we're just gonna split apart happily into two, and I don't think that's the case. No. I think at one point, and you've been talking about this for a while, but I do think that we're going to have. Uh, some sort of weird social conflict about, over this. I think it's going to be a very violent year. Me too. Bye.